stay hungry, stay foolish. Before we start into today's episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. Since our guest has written today's book, recent research strengthens the idea that gay people differ from straight people in more than the direction of their sexual feelings. There is great diversity among lesbians and gay men, to be sure, but in general, homosexuality is part of a collection of gender atypical traits, just as heterosexuality is part of a collection of gender typical traits. These different packages arise because the sexual differentiation of the brain goes forward differently in individuals destined to become gay adults as compared with their same-sex heterosexual peers. Differences in genes, sex hormones, and their interactions with the developing brain are what causes this divergence. Our show today will investigate the prenatal brain. It will also investigate the environment and what role that plays, both the environment in the womb and the physical environment outside the womb. What about puberty? What effect does that have? And fascinating studies across animals show that heterosexuality and homosexuality can be manipulated by altering genes. We'll also explore the role that birth order plays in homosexuality and heterosexuality. We have a fascinating episode in store, and today's episode features the author of Gay Straight and the Reason Why the Science of sexual orientation. Simon LaVey, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Aiden. Here's the book you're talking about, just to a little bit of promotion at the start. Absolutely, and, and I'll have it projected on the screen as well, Simon. It's a magnificent read. I had it on my Kindle, and I absolutely loved it. You've updated it. There's a second revision of that book out for sale as well. Just want to remind people, the second edition is with updated studies, because this science updates at an immense pace, Simon. Maybe you'll start there because constantly you're seeing updates, new research sparked by some of your research. Maybe I should start by saying, you know, this is all a hypothesis, if you like, a theory, an idea about how sexual orientation develops. And there's a lot that we don't know. So to say that we've proved anything at this point is, you know, probably overstating the case. We have a lot of evidence for a model, this so-called neurodevelopmental model of sexual orientation. The idea, as you say, that prenatal sex hormones guide the development of the brain in such a way that um, can predispose the owner of that brain to not only become gay or straight or perhaps something else bisexual, but also to develop a package of gender traits that can be more typical of that gender if you're talking about straight people or more um, atypical if you're talking about gay people. But first of all, nothing has been nailed down, you know, to the degree that we'd really, you know, scientists would really like to say it's been proven one way or the other. And the other thing is that um, up to now recently, scientists have sort of treated gay people and straight people as sort of monolithic packages, you know, that, that, you're a gay people, uh, you're a gay person, so you must be like this, or you're straight, you must be like that. Um, of course, that's not true, that you, you have this tremendous diversity among gay people and also among straight people. And um, that is probably the area where most research now needs to be done, try, try and understand why are these 
Why do you have this diversity? Why are some gay people, you know, you just look at them walking down the street or you, as soon as they open their mouth, you know, they're gay, right? And some people are gay who you would never have guessed that particularly. And same with straight people. You know, you get, you get um, some straight people who you guess would be gay and they're actually not. So that area is an area where a lot of research needs to be done. And that's, I suppose, the sort of the cutting edge of this whole field of research. When you think about neurodiversity, it's people with different experiences. And obviously, gay people have experiences, experience the world differently, because as we'll talk about later on, there's also differences in the structure of the brain, neurochemical differences, etc. So let's start where the origin started for you back in 91. My previous research actually had been in the visual system. So I wasn't, you know, a sex researcher as such really at that time. But I was interested in neural development and how, how the brain and the mind you know, come to develop. And uh, I saw a study um, that had been done at UCLA a, a year previously, um, a, a, which looked at a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, which is now sort of quite famous, I guess you could say. Um, that's at the base of the brain and it's sort of ancient part of the brain that deals with um, a lot of life-preserving functions like uh, keeping our body temperature right, eating and drinking, um, and uh, also our sex lives. And um, so I, um, in this study from UCLA, the researchers reported on a small region that was typically different in men and women, larger actually in men on average than in women, about twice as large. And this basically replicated earlier work that had been done in lab animals like rats. In fact, pretty much every mammal has been looked at now, including humans. There is this structure in the, in, uh, in the hypothalamus that's typically larger in males than females. And it's known from animal research to be involved in uh, sexual behavior by males directed towards females. Um, and uh, so when I saw that, I thought, well, it'd be interesting to look, to see whether there'd be differences also related to sexual orientation as well as uh, simply people's sex. And so that's what I set out to do. So this was an autopsy study. Um, I was looking at brains of people who had died, men and women, and also among the men, some of them were gay and some of them had been straight. So um, the, the opportunity to do this research was really um, sparked by the AIDS epidemic because um, sadly, you know, a lot of people uh, uh, with HIV had died and come to autopsy. Actually, among the people who died was my then partner who died in um, 19, late 1989. And um, so um, I was, um, as a gay man myself, I was very um, aware of course of what was going on and um, sort of moved by the whole thing. And so quite aside from the sort of scientific, scientific interest of doing that study, um, I was also had a sort of personal motivation, if you like. I, I, I was um, wanting to do some research more somehow connected to my identity as a gay man. And I think that was very common, actually, at that time. A lot of gay people 
their reaction to the AIDS epidemic was to turn their life around a little bit to be more oriented towards their own sexuality. Um, and so I thought I would um, uh, do a study myself uh, looking at uh, brains from men and women who died and uh, their brains were available. And um, what I found basically was that there was a difference in this part of the brain. First of all, I confirmed what the UCLA researchers had found, which was there was a basic sex difference in this part of the brain. But that if you looked at men, the gay men in the study had a structure here. It's called INAH3, or um, that's just the, the, the technical name for it. It was um, about half the size in the gay men as compared to the straight men. In fact, it was about the same in the gay men as it was in the women in my study. So that's what I reported in uh, that science paper in, in uh, 1991. And um, that got a lot of media attention at that time. And it helped spark a, um, a sort of um, series of studies uh, by other people in the same area, looking at um, what might be going on here, uh, what might be understandable about people's sexual orientation from a biological, biological perspective. And um, this was a bit contrary to um, more traditional ideas about sexual orientation, say Freudian ideas, where uh, your sexuality was the result of um, psychosocial processes like your relationship with your parents, your siblings, or um, sexual experiences you might have, whether you were sexually molested or, or that kind of thing. It was taking a more biological approach, looking at genes, hormones, uh, prenatal development, and so on. And a lot of the research that's been done since then I would say bolsters the idea that what's going on in your brain before birth has a very profound effect on your sexuality in adulthood. That one I found absolutely fascinating about, for example, you talk about mice and how the structure of mice in the fetus, for example, they're all beside each other and they can be washed over by neurochemicals if there's a female between two males, for example. I'd love you to share that in a moment. But there's one thing I wanted to say because it, it was one of the reasons I reached out to you was so many people after you wrote that paper in 1991 reached out with thanks to you because they had this inner sense of being born gay and it wasn't a bad lifestyle choice as it was often made out to be at the time and that's very important and one of the reasons i wanted to share your work also the importance of neurodiversity and understanding that neurodiversity because if the brain is a lens through which we experience the world and your brain is structured differently, you're going to see the world differently. And that can be harnessed for good. And then the other thing was that it had a fair amount of critics, like you say, for example, for example, when you study the brains of people who had who'd sadly passed away because of AIDS, people said, well, that's because of the AIDS, the brain changed shape afterwards, which, you know, is, is grasping at straws, you might say as well. Uh, let me take the last point that you mentioned. Yeah, it was a, definitely a concern to me, you know, everyone who came to everyone who died, and, and their brain had been autopsied, had died of something. And in my study, all the gay men um, had died of complications of AIDS, as had about half of the straight men in the study too, I made sure there were plenty of straight men who died of AIDS in the study also. 
And in fact, if I just compared the gay men who died of AIDS and the straight men who died of AIDS, I got the same result. In other words, the, 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 the structure in the uh, hypothalamus was half the size in the gay men who died of AIDS and the straight men who died of AIDS. So it, it, um, there was this difference even just looking at the people who died of AIDS. So I don't think that the disease itself was the cause of um, why the structure was small in the gay men. Actually, just perhaps to jump ahead a little bit, um, uh, a few years after that, there was a study on uh, sheep done by a group in Oregon Health Sciences University, um, where they found very much the same thing. It turns out, I didn't know this, but uh, apparently some fraction of male sheep of rams preferentially mate with other males. And it's about 4%, I think, of, of male sheep will mate, even when they have a choice of mating with rams or with ewes, the female sheep, they go for the rams. And what this group uh, in Oregon found out was, was basically exactly the same as what I found in humans, that this structure in the homosexual rams was about half the size compared with the heterosexual rams, even though these rams had, had, had not died of anything except they were sacrificed you know, to have their brains studied. So that reassured me, if you like, that I wasn't just looking at a pathological effect. Um, just sort of in the same general area, um, it's true that a lot of gay men liked my research because they um, thought of it as bolstering the idea that they were born gay. Um, I mean, I certainly have this feeling about myself that I was born gay, but, but I, I don't actually remember being born. And I, um, even if I did, I, I don't think I'd remember what my sexual orientation was at the time. So it, it, that's just a, a, a sort of way of saying, I suppose, that you feel it's a very deep part of yourself, that, that it's opposed to the idea that you somehow you know, chose to be gay, which is a, a sort of idea that's been thrown at the gay community sometimes by you know, Christian conservatives or something like that. And um, it's a bit of a crazy idea because, I mean, it, if you chose to be gay, that would be a sort of life-altering decision that you would uh, you would remember. You know, even even if you were blind drunk at the time that you made the decision, you know, made the choice, you'd remember it. Most gay people don't remember having made any choice like that. And, and um, anyway, so um, th there are some gay people who don't who are very uneasy with this kind of research um, for a variety of reasons. Um, they may be academics who feel that being gay is not something that comes out of yourself, but it's something sort of imposed on you by society. It's a sort of label that, that, that um, society puts on people. And then you have to sort of live to, up to that label, if you like. Um, I think there is an element of that. I mean, clearly, how we think about our sexuality is strongly influenced by what society tries to inscribe in this, if you like. Um, but I don't think that has to do with the actual attractions we feel. I think it ha that has to do with how we deal with it, how we present ourselves, what kind of relationships we get into, you know, whether we actually engage in gay sex or whether we decide it's wrong and we try to live as a heterosexual lifestyle. All that sort of thing is very much um, uh, sensitive to uh, social forces. 
But our actual direction of sexual attractions, I don't think that is. I mean, I, I've seen no evidence really for that. Let's jump on to some of the differences then as well, because we're limited on our time and there's so much in the book there. You cover every research piece of research that's out there at the time of writing and the second edition as well is in the book. So it's difficult to try and hone in. And if I pick one, Simon, you kind of go, oh, there's a better one than that. Please do just brush me out of the way. You say that Roger Gorski and his colleagues at UCLA made a key discovery back in the 1970s. This was really great research for you to build upon. Right. They were working at that time on rats and in the 1970s. Uh, Roger Gorski and his colleagues, I think one of his postdocs actually, spotted a this sex difference in the brains of rats in the hypothalamus. This basic, what they call a sex dimorphism, which just means a structural difference between males and females in the hypothalamus. And uh, the structure was larger in the male rats than in the female rats. And what Gorski then went on to do was to look at the development of that structure and show that it was controlled by levels of sex hormones circulating in the, in the fetal rat right before and around the time of birth. And that he could alter that. For example, he could add to the hormone levels, uh, testosterone levels in female fetuses or take away testosterone levels in uh, male fetuses. And that would ultimately change the size of the structure in the brain and also change the animal's sexual behavior when it was adult. Whereas if you took an adult rat and did the same sort of intervention, um, uh, altering hormone levels, he didn't produce changes like that. It was something, there was some kind of sensitive period when the brain's first assembling itself, where um, the, the levels of the sex hormones are so crucial. They enter the brain and they control the development and survival of neurons in uh, in the hypothalamus. This is the piece I found fascinating. And forgive me, my I, my mind works by metaphor. And I was thinking about how, for example, you had the structure, you had the diagram in the book about the structure of rats and how they have babies. They have multiple babies at once. And it's almost like a daisy chain of a necklace. And each daisy is a little embryo. And if there was a male, male, female, male, male, you have this washing over effect of testosterone, for example, and actually the female embryo can pick up some of those. And this, the reason I mentioned that is the importance of that for prenatal influence on how that baby forms later on. And also then the other thing just to add, and this is interest of time, is that you talk about three puberties that happen. One is before birth, around the 12 week mark, I think, by memory, then there's again, af just after birth, a kind of mini pu puberty, and then there's puberty itself, those those aspects are important, again, for sexual development. Yes, that's quite true. Um, most attention has been focused on this prenatal puberty, if you want to call it that, I don't think people use that phrase with regard to the prenatal period. But that seems to be the most critical period. Something is then going on immediately after birth in humans, where you have another surge of testosterone in males. We don't really know what that's good for exactly. And then at puberty, there's another surge. Obviously, it's testosterone levels go up hugely, uh, particularly in males. And uh, that also probably influences brain development, but we don't really know very much about what's going on there. Um, but just getting back to this, this, this story you mentioned about the, the, the rats in the, um, 
the, the, the fetal rats, yes, they're lined up in a sort of row in the, in the, in the mother's womb. And the male rats are busy producing, the male fetuses are busy producing testosterone and some of it leaks out and can affect neighboring females. And those females, uh, you can see the effects on this structure in the hypothalamus that will be larger than if they had not had a male right next to them, if you like. And um, uh, this uh, process also affects the behavior of the, of the females when they're adult. You have a similar effect actually in um, in cattle. Uh, you, you have uh, um, sometimes you know a cow will have two calves in the womb and a male and a female, and the female apparently picks up some testosterone from the male, and that um, female fetus when she's a grown-up cow uh, shows atypical behavior. Will be more likely to mount other uh, females, for example, than. Um, uh, females, fetuses who were just um, singletons in the in the in the womb, if you like. So yeah, um, we don't really know whether there's any effect like that in humans. If you have a, you know a boy and a girl twins in the womb, whether the girl is affected at all by the presence of the boy in the womb, that there's been sort of mixed evidence on that. And I don't think there's any strong uh, evidence about at this point about an influence of one on the other. There's much to learn here. Like you mentioned, for example, you saw the hypothalamus differences in rats, for example, from the 70s. And then again, in those people you study those brains that you studied, but also you talk about how well, well, we can affect this also, in as simple an organism as a fruit fly, you've seen this huge effect when you start to almost tamper with the genes to actually change behavior, sexual behavior of fruit flies? Yes, you can. There's, uh, there's several genes that have been identified in fruit flies that um, are uh, known to be involved in the regulation of sexual behavior and um, the um, direction of sexual attraction, if you like, or the, the responses of males to females or females to males. And that um, it's pretty easy to tamper with the, the genetic makeup of fruit flies. And uh, one can easily show that um, th th these, th their sexual behaviors can be modified or reversed uh, quite easily, actually, by um, changing the uh, genetic, their genetic makeup. I'm really interested in, for example, the neurodiversity effect and understanding, because I think when we understand things, we're more empathetic, I want to build on this because you say, to some extent, homosexuality is part of a package that I mentioned in the introduction of mental traits, many of which can be considered gender variant or gender, gender nonconformist. And nonconformity is a great word when it comes to innovation, because you want people who go against the grain. And you say, whereas heterosexuality is part of a package of gender typical or gender conformist traits, Let's share this idea with regards to children, because we start to see these traits in early childhood. Absolutely. Um, kids who later become gay are, are, tend to be different from other children. And there's, you know, you're getting into the area of stereotypes now, because um, th that's the trouble with this whole area of research. It's not like you can predict with certainty what the future sexual orientation of any child is going to be. Um, but in a st statistical sense, there's a very strong connection between um, a child's gendered behavior when it's 
you know, it, when it's five, six, seven years old, and it's it, that child's ultimate sexual orientation when it's adult. Um, and uh, that's been shown in many ways, actually, by longitudinal studies where you look at kids when they're young and then follow them. It's also been done, for example, a study that was done at um, Northwestern University a few years ago, uh, where the researchers um, recruited people who happened to have videotapes of themselves when they're young children. And uh, the researchers took these videotapes. And they, the, the kids were not doing anything particular. They were just sort of being themselves, playing around. Um, and they took short clips, maybe about 10-second clips from each videotape, showed it to people who didn't know what the actual sexual orientation of these kids was when they were adult. And asked them to put these kids on a spectrum of gender conformity to gender nonconformity. And the result was very, very striking that the kids who ultimately became gay or lesbian adults were on average much shifted towards the gender nonconformist end of that spectrum, if you like, compared with the kids who became straight adults. And people often think, you know, if a child says, oh, uh, you know, a, a, a child born a, a boy, born male, who very much acts like a girl or says that he, he wants to be a girl or actually insists he is a girl, um, that that child is, is destined to become a transgender adult. Um, actually, that's not really true. Most of these kids, these very gender nonconformist kids, become... Um, uh, it sort of lose this desire to change their sex. M many of them, actually most of them, become gay or lesbian adults, but they, they don't want to change their sex anymore. They abandon that desire, usually around the time of puberty. And um, so uh, th 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 there is a, um, a connection, if you like, between kids' childhood gender traits and their adult sexual orientation. It's... Um, it makes you want to be cautious about um, helping a child transition, if you like. Like if you, if you know that the child is uh, most likely to abandon that desire at about 13 or 14 years of age. More work that you talked about in here was uh, fascinating. And, and again, I'm, I'm going to this idea of seeing the world differently. And this is where you talk about actually the behavioral traits of other mammals. For example, rhesus monkeys, the people thing aspect where chimps will actually see the face and the expressions of others more. Male chimps will actually play with toys very much like a child would. They engage in rough and tumble play. Those aspects are fascinating because they are they play a huge role in your research as well. First of all, I should say, you know, I'm not an active researcher anymore. I just write about other people's research at this point. So um, uh, I want to make clear that uh, my own research goes back to that study I talked about before. But yes, um, uh, you know, when people thinking about um, childhood play behavior and the toys that kids use, there's a, there's a lot of people say, oh, that's, you know, you give ch children certain toys and that's why, you know, a girl is playing with dolls or a boy is, is not playing with dolls because uh, if he grabs a doll, his parents say, no, no, that's a girl's whatever. Um, there may be some of that. I'm sure there is some of that. But nevertheless, there's some sort of fundamental difference between boys and girls, typically, that they prefer different toys. And that's been well observed in, in, in uh, monkeys, too. You know, that, that you can give, 
you know, you give juvenile monkeys, um, say dolls or uh, or cars or, 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 or that, those kinds of you know human toys that are more typically preferred by boys or girls. And the monkeys very strongly prefer, just like humans, the male, the young male monkeys prefer the um, the car, the, the, the toys that require movement, activity, and the uh, girls tend to prefer the dolls and things like that. Uh, the, the the not the girls, the the female uh, juvenile monkeys prefer the the toys that that girls would prefer. So there's something you know these are toys that the monkeys have never seen before. So there's something that goes beyond simply, you know, what parents give to their kids. There's something innate about these toy preferences. And when you see a kid who's strongly preferring toys for the, for, for, for the other sex, that seems to be part of a package of gender atypical traits that may uh, eventually lead to the uh, child becoming a gay adult, but not necessarily. It's not a 100% thing. Again, an interesting time zone. I'm going to jump ahead because there's, again, there's so much in each of these chapters. You talk about childhood development and then, for example, persistence through adulthood and those type of things. And I'm going to skim over that for the moment because I wanted to turn our, our attention on to research on cognitive differences between gay and straight people. You explore here, for example, visuospatial skills, intelligence, occupational preferences, and much more. Perhaps at a high level, you'll tell us a bit about this. Yes, there, there, there's been um, a, a lot of studies in this area, and uh, if you look at occupational preferences, for example, that there um, there are very strong sex differences to start off with, um, and um, uh, with women typically preferring more people-oriented occupations and men typically preferring more thing-oriented occupations. Uh, so, um, and that difference has been, and again, I, I want to emphasize this is an average thing. It's not like, you know, every man wants to be a, a mechanic and every woman wants to be a nurse or something like that, far from it. But if you look at large numbers, there's a very clear statistical difference between the sexes. That is true, whatever, whatever country or culture has been looked at. Um, and, uh, the more gender equitable a culture is, you know, the more that men and women have the choices to do their own thing, the stronger these differences become. So um, that's a, a, a basic sex difference. And when you look at gays and lesbians, you, you find that on average, this is gender shifted so that, that gay men tend to be more towards um, people oriented jobs. Uh, lesbians perhaps more towards thing-oriented jobs. Again, it's I'm I'm um, making these generalizations, and I feel bad about that because you know there's just millions of people who don't fit those those stereotypes, if you like. But we scientists like to look at you know statistical averages to to try to see the underlying truth, if you like, and that's what's been reported. And, and maybe I should add to that, you know. Gay people are not monolithic. They're not all of a kind. There are really differences among gay people, among gay guys and among lesbians and among bisexual people um, that need to be explored. And, and that's an area that is really the, the boundary that we're trying to push back right now. A couple of other things are probably important to mention. 
you go into, for example, the environment, so not only the prenatal environment, so the womb, for example, but actually then the home environment afterwards. And I, I, I'm always stuck, we had uh, Bruce Lipton on the show talking about epigenetics in the past. And he gave me a great term that genes load the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. Maybe this will bring together the idea of the environment and then actually the role genes play and then the role epigenetics plays. Well, yes, um, that's an area again that needs to be explored. Uh, uh, epigenetic changes are changes to the genome that are not the actual letters of the genetic code. They're, they're chemical changes that affect how the gene actually works, how it's expressed, as you say. And um, there have been some studies suggesting that this could play a role in sexual orientation too, that there are some modifications to the genes that, um, in, in, at least in some gay people, that might influence how the genes are expressed. And that might, so two people with the same genes might actually develop differently because of these different modifications when they're children or puberty or something like that. So it wouldn't be entirely the genes that that, that you got when, when you were a fertilized egg, if you like. It's um, also um, how the genes are, are, are actually expressed uh, thanks to these epigenetic changes uh, that we don't really greatly understand, but they are a, a route by which the environment can feed back in and influence how these genes that we are born with um, work and how they actually um, sort of drive our behavior in, in some direction or another. We've mentioned chemicals, we've mentioned structure, we've your area of expertise was the brain as well. So you looked at, for example, anatomical differences in the brain, we mentioned the hypothalamus, but there's also stuff like lateralization in the brain, amygdala or difference, difference in amygdala, and this goes female male as well. And it's probably worth talking about that. And then maybe we'll have time to finish up talking about hereditary traits as well, because that's another important aspect to look at. Right. Uh, it turns out that the difference I found in the hypothalamus uh, um, is just one of a, a whole suite of differences that have been reported in the brain um, that uh, may also be influenced by uh, hormones prenatally or, or perhaps postnatally too. So um, there are, you know, when you're talking about sexuality, you're not talking about just one little part of the brain that you know, controls your sex life. There's a whole sort of network of structures. You mentioned the amygdala, um, uh, the uh, hippocampus, uh, various cortical regions um, are also involved. And um, these all probably are somewhat different in the way they're organized in gay people and straight people. There've been reports of anatomical differences in the cerebral cortex and other structures. Um, and that's certainly been reported in laboratory animals too. There's uh, uh, hormonal effects on, on the amygdala, as you say, a structure that's rather centrally involved in, um, um, when you see, for example, a face, you know, do you find it sexually attractive? Uh, the, the, and what you do about that, the amygdala is a sort of um, structure deep in the brain that uh, it seems to play a key role in um, that kind of um, analysis that the brain plays. Um, so, uh, but that's mostly research for the future. We don't really know in great detail um, 
about other structures in the brain, how, how they operate differently in, um, in uh, gay and straight people. So I don't think we should try and get into that too much. You, you mentioned the heredity aspect of it. Yeah, being gay uh, runs in families, no question about that. Um, and uh, if, you're, if you're gay, you're quite likely to have gay relatives. I had, I had, he's no longer living, but I had a gay brother, for example, my older brother who's also gay. And there are other gay people in my family too, in the next generation. So, um, uh, and that it, it probably reflects the fact that there are genes that pass down in certain families that do influence people's sexual orientation. And um, uh, there have been recently uh, studies um, looking for these looking for these genes. So we know these genes exist. But the question is, you know, what are they? Where are they in the genome and so on? And that's work that's currently going on um, uh, thanks to projects like the UK Biobank project, which has followed tens of thousands of individuals. Many of them have had their brain scanned, they've had their genes analyzed and so on. And it's become more and more clear that there are certain regions on certain chromosomes that do influence people's sexuality both in men and in women. Um, but uh, there isn't a single gay gene. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, you have this gene, you're gay, you don't have the gene, you're straight. It's rather that there's a whole bunch of genes which together form a genetic network, just as the different parts of the brain form a brain network. And how these networks, these genetic networks and neural networks operate is hugely difficult challenge. We don't really know yet. And that's what people are trying to um, unravel, if you like. We know that the biology is important. We know certain aspects of it in some detail, but to get the whole picture, it's gonna be decades of work, I think, to really understand that. That's what, what I love about what you've done here is you, you've, you've been at least part of the snowball that's starting an avalanche and as the research as the means to research become easier is easier with technology and you know the price of of gene mapping drops etc it all becomes more feasible a couple of more ones for you that that just hopefully squeeze in you mentioned you have another an older brother there's a chapter called the older brother effect and that's important as well because a fascinating piece of research you mentioned comes out of canada which is a question does the order in which you're born have an impact on you and your sexual orientation? This is part of a, a much bigger field of research on birth order and uh, psychology. You know, there, there's many ways apparently in which your position in the in the in the sequence of births influences uh, your personality, your interests, and so on. And um, uh, the general idea is that older brothers, the firstborn brothers particularly, or firstborn children, either sex, have expectations imposed on them by their parents and others. Whereas the younger kids are more free to do their own thing, if you like. And they, they tend to be more, more non-conformist, more rebellious, they're more exploratory, perhaps more creative, uh, and um, maybe politically different. With regard to sexual orientation, um, the story is that um, if, if you're a, a man and you have at least one older brother, that increases your chances of being gay. And in fact, the more older brothers you have, the more likelihood it is that you're going to be gay. 
Um, and that's, as you say, this, this uh, Canadian psychologists have done most of the research on that, Ray Blanchard and his colleagues in Toronto. This effect is not, um, it's not all, you know, again, it's a sort of average thing. I mean, yeah, I, I have an older brother and I'm gay. So you could say, okay, I'm gay because I have an older brother, but my older brother was also gay, you know, and, and he didn't have an older brother. So it, it, you can't just say, you know, oh, you're, you have five older brothers and therefore you must be gay. Actually, my youngest brother who has four older brothers is straight as anyone. So uh, it doesn't always work out like that way. But on average, which is what we scientists like, uh, looking at statistically, there is an effect like that. And the scientists who do this research, they say it's a biological factor that it's something to do with um, when the mother has a male fetus, when she's she's carrying a, a, a baby that's um, that, that's a boy, um, she may develop some sort of immune reaction to that male fetus, which then affects the development of subsequent fetuses in such a way as to uh, increase the chances they'll be gay. Um, and uh, they seem to have the statistics to bear out that uh, finding. So um, it, it's it's a it's another factor, if you like, that influences people's sexuality. It doesn't seem to operate in in women, as far as we know. So it's, it's this is only to do with with guys. The second last chapter goes into beyond the black and white of gay or straight. It goes into that diversity we talked about of, of thinking of sexuality of a spectrum, for example, perhaps we'll say a word on that. And again, this is like the very high level of the research that you go into each of these chapters, I want to make that very, very clear. You know, traditionally, the, uh, it's always been thought that there are different kinds of gay people and different kinds of lesbians, for example, you know, this the butch and femme lesbians that's that's an idea that's been going around for for generations and it used to be if you go back to the 1950s there was this social construction so if you had a lesbian relationship it had to be a butch lesbian and a femme lesbian you know a more masculine lesbian and a more feminine lesbian um and that's changed a lot over the years you, you still see butch femme relationships but you also see relationships that don't fit in with that at all um and uh Similarly with guys, you, you do sometimes see, a, 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 um, well, you have this top-bottom distinction, which is uh, really to do with sexual behavior. And that's true. It's not a dominant thing. Uh, lots of gay men are, are sort of versatile, you know, not, not committed to one behavior or the other. But in any case, um, these things have been looked at recently by a bunch of uh, psychologists. And, uh, um, and the reports are that you see... Um, biological differences such that butch lesbians tend to have anatomical differences um, as compared with femme lesbians. So uh, particularly in these finger length ratios that we talked about before, um, those differences you see in butch lesbians, but not in femme lesbians who are more typical, more comparable to heterosexual women. So people have got hold of the idea maybe that the, the butch lesbians are the more born that way lesbians and the femme lesbians are more somehow bisexual or perhaps more lesbian for reasons that don't have to do with biology. And um, that um, there might be something similar with, uh, with uh, gay, with tops and bottoms among gay men. 
this is an area that's being actively researched right now. And I don't think we can say exactly what's going on, but that's the area I think that needs to be studied more than anything. Simon, I could talk to you for all day, but you have an appointment and uh, you have to go for that appointment. And absolutely loved your work. I know you have a new book coming out as well. And I'll ask you to share where people can find you and find your new book. Maybe you'll tell us a little bit about that book. Before we do, I, I have a closing quote that I love from the end of your book that really, because I, I engaged with the book before I got here. And then I saw this at the end. I was like, that's exactly why I wanted to share this work. You say the kaleidoscopic blend of gender variant and gender typical traits that characterizes gay people is exactly what enables us to make our own unique contributions to society. It's the reason we should be valued celebrated and welcomed into society rather than merely being tolerated. I absolutely love that because that's exactly what I wanted to achieve by having you on the show. And I'm sure that's what you want to achieve by doing this work. But over to you, where can people find you? And what's your final message for our audience, Simon? Research into sex sexual orientation started with trying to figure out what's wrong with gay people, right? I and mean, that was that was the, the the whole thought behind this research. 30, 40, 50 years ago. And I think we found the answer to that question. There's nothing wrong with gay people, right? That, um, but beyond that now, we realize that our sexuality, our sexual orientation is an important part of who we are. It, it's not just who we want to sleep with, you know? I mean, that's obviously you know, a huge part of it, but it makes us different people, people who are able to make somewhat different contributions to society. And um, I think that... Um, you know, I think parents should feel blessed to have a gay kid. And I think more and more parents are actually, um, because they know that this kid will be will be a little different. We'll ha have a path to tread that's a little more, perhaps a little more creative or somehow a little more um, um, diverse, yeah, if you like, than, um, than everyone being the same. And so uh, I hope that the biology will help people understand and accept that. And if that's uh, the message people get from this kind of research, great. Now, with regard to people want to find out more, there is uh, the book that you've been talking about, Gay Straight and the Reason Why, that's out already. I have another book that's coming out early next year, Attraction, Love, Sex, uh, The Inside Story. The reason I'm, I'm hesitating with the title is that my publicist just changed the title at the last moment. and I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> They didn't like the title I had with it. And so that's the title that's coming out from Columbia University Press. And that's a much broader look at sex, not just sexual orientation, which is just one chapter. It's about everything we know about sex um, uh, from a psychological and, well, from a scientific perspective, if you like. Uh, but anyway, I have a website. It's called simonlalay.com. Pretty, pretty creative. And then www.simonlalay.com, I think that's what it is. And uh, if you just Google my name, Simon LeVay, you'll find it. It'd be right there at the top, I think, uh, after my Wikipedia entry. So it's easy to find me and uh, the books that I've written, um, some which are, are nothing to do with sex. So I want to say, Aiden, thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate your commitment to diversity, including neurodiversity. And uh, I wish you the best with your, you know, your future guests. Thank you, Simon. And, and I want to mention the other books because I was torn which one to cover. You have The Sexual Brain there. You had um, the, oh, what was the one? Queer Science was in there as well. 
when science goes wrong, there's so much work in there that I, I was like kind of going, oh, which one will I get? Because it was difficult to, to book you onto the show as well. So, and it is, it's simonlevay.com is the website. All your publications are listed there as well. And I highly recommend it. I recommend all your work. And most of all, the I, I want to celebrate you for your work on neurodiversity and doing a piece for the world to help people understand things. It's been a pleasure talking to you, author of Gay, Straight, and the Reason Why, The Science of Sexual Orientation. Simon LeVay, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aidan. I'm always impressed at people like you who have no, as far as I know, you know, no particular background in the area are able to um, deal with this. As always, thank you to our sponsor, Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can find Zai at hellozai.com.